set us up to understand what we're going to encounter as I preach through this text. Before I read the text, I want to uh, remind you of a couple of big picture things. I think that uh, uh, the book of Revelation is primarily about the destruction of Jerusalem and the changing of the Old Covenant, which was a covenant that was made exclusively with the nation of Israel, into a new covenant which is made with people from all around the world who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so there are some people who believe that there still remain two peoples of God, that there is uh, ethnic Israel, and then there's spiritual Israel, spiritual Israel referring to Christians. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I think that there is only one people of God, and that that is spiritual Israel. And I think the book of Revelation is uh, devoted to showing how such an important uh, change came about. It would almost, uh, almost be surprising if we never had something like this in the Bible that would explain uh, why uh, God had uh, broken his covenant with Israel. Actually, it would be fair to say that Israel broke their covenant with God. Three-fourths of the Bible is about the old covenant. So from Genesis through Malachi is about this old covenant. And so it would seem odd to me uh, that there wouldn't be considerable attention given to the fact that God's covenant with Israel has been, has been broken, and now his covenant is with spiritual Israel, those who have faith in Jesus. Then also before I read the text, I want to point out to you that this is very similar to something that we have already had in the book of Revelation. We're going to see seven bowls of wrath poured out on Jerusalem here, but we've already had seven trumpets of wrath, and the seven match up. Trumpets are meant to warn. These bowls of wrath are meant to destroy. And so uh, even, even in this book that is primarily devoted to the destruction of Jerusalem, there's a significant section of it that is devoted to warning. And then also take into consideration that this book was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so it's yet another warning to Jerusalem, you should repent and turn back to the Lord. But they didn't, and what we read about here happened in the year A.D. 70. Uh, there's, there are parallels, though, between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. So I kind of remember it this way. I think of a beach scene where there is land and there is sea. And the first, the first trumpet and the first bowl have to do with the land. The second trumpet and the seven bowl have to do with the sea. And now in my mind, I imagine a, a clear stream crashing down the hillside and running into the ocean. The third trumpet and the third plague have to do with the rivers and the streams of water. And then I look up in the sky, and there's a, a beautiful sun in a clear blue sky. The fourth trumpet and the fourth bowl have to do with plagues on the heavenly bodies. Sun, moon, and stars in the case of the trumpets, and here it's the sun. And then I imagine in, uh, in a bushy region, I see a black cat, which is going to represent for me evil. And the fifth trumpet is, uh, has to do with the locusts that come out of the abyss. And the fifth bowl here has to do with uh, the bowl being poured out on the kingdom of the beast. So that's the fifth. And then the sixth has to do with the great river Euphrates. So to help our picture, we've got to 
think of a real big river coming into both uh, the, the, seventh, the, four, the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl of wrath have to do with the river Euphrates. And then both the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl have to do with plagues being poured out on the sky. And then in both the trumpets and in the bowls, they're followed by uh, earth-shaking events, earthquakes, and uh, great big hailstones and things like that. So uh, let me read the text, and then I'll continue with the introduction. I need to tell you uh, two or three stories. So Revelation chapter 16, verse 1 Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Remember that the word earth could uh, also be translated land. I prefer the translation land. I think it makes more sense that this is a very localized judgment. Not worldwide, it's it's on Jerusalem and Israel. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. So when the trumpet was blown, it just affected one-third of the sea. Now when the bowl is poured out, everything in the sea dies. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its, waters was dry, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe." Now, continuing with my introduction to this passage, 
I uh, want to tell you two or three stories, maybe four or five. So, uh, but I think it will really help us to process this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, talking with someone in North Carolina who is a surveyor. And uh, he has, in, in recent months, purchased a drone, a very expensive drone, that he uses to do the surveying work. He said that uh, work that used to take weeks, he said two weeks, can be done in 45 minutes now by the use of this drone. Uh, that's very fascinating. I'm looking forward to talking to Steve about that afterwards, who is also a surveyor. But the thing that really fascinated me that leads into this passage of Scripture is he said that by use of these drones, they can fly over territory that is covered with forest or covered with jungle. And there are little peeps in the canopy that the drone can detect the shape of the floor, the shape of the forest floor. And then it can remove all the leaves and trees, and it gives you a perfectly accurate picture of what the floor looks like, the forest floor looks like. Well, what's really fascinating is that they have flown these things over the, uh, the jungles in, uh, in Central America and in South America, and they're finding all these ruins from the Incas and the Mayas that they never knew existed. So able to look, at, look through the leaves and then remove the trees, and then there are these, these big cities and all of these ruins that we never knew existed. And so I'm very fascinated in that. If some of you can direct me to where I might get more information on that. But that's as much as I know, which is enough to remind me of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And movies like that, because the scene that is, I'm about to describe is not unique to Indiana Jones movies. It's, it's in stuff like National Treasure and, 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 and other things that you guys will know about. So there's an explorer, Indiana Jones, you say, who goes into this ancient city. Nobody else knows about it. He's going to take an idol that uh, is valuable because he wants to put it in a museum, but then there's a bad guy who wants to take it because it's got rubies for eyes or something like that. And so they take it, and then the place starts to collapse because it's all booby-trapped. And arrows start flying through and hitting the walls, and people get their heads cut off. But then it always ends up, it always ends up with the place collapsing. With, and they're running to get out, and rocks are falling down, and they just barely get out, but the whole place is collapsing. Now, you're not supposed to watch a movie like that and say, hey, 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 stop that, stop that, go back. Look at that, look at that idol right there. It looks like something on Easter Island. I wonder if it's connected to Easter Island. Okay, go ahead. Oh, stop, stop, stop right there. Back up just a little bit. This is supposed to be taking place in Peru, but there is a plant right there that doesn't grow in Peru. Okay, go ahead. Wouldn't you, don't you hate to watch movies with somebody like that? It's always picking the things apart. I, I, I'm that way when I watch survival movies. You know, someone, someone gets shipwrecked on an island. Somebody is plane wrecked in the wilderness. And then, you know, the next thing you know, they've made a flint knife. Never, never done anything in their whole lives, but now they've got this beautiful flint knife, more beautiful than anything that any Native American could ever have done. They, they can't do that. And then... 
they do something stupid about the way they start fires. And then, uh, and then they, it just filled with stupid stuff. And, and I, it's just kind of frustrating for someone who knows a little bit about bushcraft to watch this. That's not the point. The point is not that they're going to teach us how to make a fire with a bow and drill. The point is not, it, you just kind of look, got to look at the big picture here. In the, in, when, the, when the city is collapsing in the Indiana Jones movies, and when someone is hacking their way through the wilderness and encountering all this stupid stuff, you just got to suspend belief and go. It's like you, you're watching a cartoon. You, you can't watch Roadrunner cartoons and always be explaining how that the coyote could never survive a fall like that. You've just got to, you've just got to adapt. I'm watching a Roadrunner cartoon here. And uh, I have told you those stories to say, it's easy to get lost in Revelation, in the whole book of Revelation, and miss the big picture. Look so much at the individual trees that you miss the big picture. And I'm going to take a big picture approach to this passage of Scripture and not try to particularly explain everything that is here. I just think that you need to see the city is falling down. You need to see the big picture that God's wrath is coming down upon Jerusalem. And then there are several things that we can learn about God's justice. Things that would have applied to people who read this in the first century. Things that will apply to us who read it now in the, in the 21st century. But in order to prepare you for that, I need to tell you now a couple of stories from the Bible. One story is uh, the story that is familiar to many Bible readers. Uh, it was, uh, this takes place at a time when Israel was being ruled by a very wicked king named Ahab, and he was married to a very wicked woman named Jezebel. And the people who really knew the Lord and followed after him were very few. In fact, Elijah the prophet thought he was the only one. And uh, so the Lord leads Elijah to, uh, to stage a showdown on Mount Carmel. Now, I don't know if you ever pay any attention to Bible maps. Uh, you can check this out later. Don't, don't do it now. It'll, it will distract you. But Mount Carmel is fairly north in Israel. It's, it's uh, pretty close to the sea. The Kishon River goes by Mount Carmel. And there is a plain by Mount Carmel that is called Megiddo. Megiddo is famous for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you one of the reasons in just a minute, but... So Mount Carmel is right there at the edge of the plain of Megiddo. And on Mount Carmel, uh, the, uh, the prophet Elijah staged a showdown with the false prophets, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. And he said, we're going to uh, present some sacrifices here, and whichever God answers by fire, he's going to be the true God. So all you people of Israel, you, keep, you, you say you're going to worship Yahweh, the true God, and then you want to go and worship the Baals. You're, you just keep going back and forth. You need to make up your mind. So let's get it settled. Who is the real God? It's a lovely story, one of my favorites. And the end of it is that the true God answers with fire from heaven. But it shows that he, he is demonstrating, I am destroying my enemies on this mountain at the edge of the plain of Megiddo, I am destroying my enemies here, and I am 
preserving my people. Now, there's something else that happened on the plains of Megiddo. Uh, After the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria, the southern kingdom of Judah continued for a couple hundred years more. But the last really good king in in Judah was a man named Josiah. And uh, Josiah lived in the 7th century B.C., so in, in the 600s and into the 500s B.C. He lived at that time. And after, after he died, then there were some other kings that came, but they were just puppet kings. So in Second in Chronicles, after you read about the death of Josiah, five verses later, you see the deportation of, of Judah into Babylon. So Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. There were four kings. They're all dealt with in four verses. They all reigned for just a little while. They were puppet kings. Josiah was the last really good king. And Josiah is one of those kings who almost did nothing wrong. There are very few, but he was one of the really good kings. And uh, the thing that he did that was not really immoral, it was just dumb, is that uh, Pharaoh Necho was going on a, on a military campaign, and he was going fairly near to Judah, and Josiah decided that he was going to go out and fight with Pharaoh Necho. And Pharaoh Necho tried to dissuade him from it, my fight's not with you, so just uh, mind your own business. But Josiah went anyway. And it really is kind of a, um, a, water, a watershed event in the life of Israel. Easy to remember if you memorize this little poem of sorts. In 610, Josiah fell to Pharaoh Necho at Megiddo. Now, it wasn't exactly 610, it was, uh, but that's pretty close. It'll help you to remember it. In 610, Josiah fell to Pharaoh Necho on the plains of Megiddo. So, Megiddo then became something like a place of terrible defeat. And it became proverbial much like Waterloo is in our language. So Napoleon meets his Waterloo, and now uh, when someone gets defeated, we say, ah, finally, finally met his Waterloo. So it's just become, a, just become a figure of speech for talking about a place where there was a terrible, a terrible battle that took place. All right, that's the introduction. And as I said, it, uh, it took up about one-third of the sermon Uh, maybe more, because now we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, and all that's going to come up, but we're going to look at this passage of Scripture and say, what does all of this say about the justice of God? So God is pouring out the bowls of his wrath upon Jerusalem. It's very devastating. And uh, when we see such terrible devastation take place, as is described in all these plagues, we want to know Was that really necessary? The fundamental principle of justice is that a person does get what he deserves. 
So God can be just and, and interrupt his justice and, and provide grace, but it must, it's always in a means that is consistent with his justice. So God is essentially unalterably just. And justice, the basic principle of justice is that a person or his substitute gets what he deserves. There's a lot of confusion about justice these days. People add all kinds of uh, adjectival prefixes to justice, and it ends up meaning something other than justice. It means that uh, you know, pe- people get things they haven't worked for, or people get special treatment because of, uh, because of s- something, something about them. They that's not justice. Justice is not getting special treatment. Justice is not getting something that you've not worked for. Justice is getting what you deserve. And uh, God is a God of justice. So, but let's look in this passage of Scripture and see what is it that uh, merited or what, what can we observe about God's justice. The first thing that we can see is that God's justice is extremely severe. Not overly severe, but extremely severe. In the first bowl that is poured out, there are harmful and painful sores that come upon people who bore the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. These are people who have aligned themselves with the beast, which is the Roman government in general and Nero in particular. They have aligned themselves and said, well, we can adapt the religion of Judaism to accommodate what they are requiring of us and That, I think, is what it means to take the mark of the beast. We are going to think the way they want us to think, so they've got a mark on their head. We're going to do the things that the Roman government requires us to do, so that's like a mark on the hand. And here the wrath of God is poured out on compromisers. So the the justice of God is very severe. And then when the second bowl is poured out, it's poured out on the ocean. It's poured out into the sea, and the sea becomes like the blood of a corpse. So then you're cutting off commerce, you're cutting off all of the food that can come from the ocean. The lesson that we can learn about God's justice from this second bowl is that God's justice is extremely devastating, that it, it uh, is far-reaching, it destroys the things that you hold precious, and I'll make application to individuals a little later on, but the general principle is that God's, God's justice is severe. God's justice is devastating, and then God's judgment is also just. And this passage of Scripture uh, has us see the, just, the justice of God's judgment from two perspectives. First of all, from looking backward at what Jerusalem had done, and then secondly, by looking forward to the way that they were going to respond to God's judgment. So first of all, uh, in looking backward on what they had done, Notice what the angel in charge of the water says in verse 5. Just are you, a holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And, and by the way, if you're skeptical as to whether or not this describes Jerusalem, this is like a dead giveaway. This is the way that Jerusalem is described in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus says... Uh, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. 
And uh, so Jesus describes Jerusalem as the place that has shed the blood of saints and prophets. And in fact, he says, all the blood of all the prophets that has been shed from Abel all the way to righteous Zechariah, who was slain between the altar and the temple, all of that blood is going to fall on this generation. And, of course, before that generation had completely died out, then the wrath that is described in the book of Revelation had fallen upon the people of Jerusalem. But anyway, I'm dealing with the point now that the judgment of God is just because of what Jerusalem has done in the past. They've shed the blood of saints and prophets. And so now the angel says, you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. That that means it is just. It is what they deserve. And then the altar says, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, remember earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw that there are souls under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the testimony that they had borne. They were killed and they call out to the Lord, how long, O Lord God Almighty, before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, the judgment that is about to fall is described and those under the altar here just described as the altar say, you kept your word. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You did exactly what you said you would do. So we see the justice of God's judgments by looking back at what Jerusalem had done, but we also can see the justice of God's judgment by looking ahead to the way that they would respond. So verses 8, 9 talk about the scorching that they receive from the sun that is allowed to scorch people with fire. But look at the last phrase in verse 9. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. That's what should have happened is the the underlying implication. They should have repented when they saw that God is pouring out this wrath. They should have repented and said, Lord, you are right. You are right. We've been wrong. We turn to you now. And then the same thing is repeated in verses 10 and 11. So people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. It's like anything but that. We have all known people who have made wreckage of their lives. And... uh, And it's like they're willing to try any kind of pill or any kind of counseling, anything but repenting and turning to God. And uh, so the fact that people remain impenitent is reflects that God is just in judging them because someone might have said, oh, you know, if you just gave them another chance, they would have repented. And God has given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity through the ages. And now when he finally pours out his judgment, they still remain cursing God and refusing to repent. And so the judgment that God sends upon Jerusalem is severe, devastating. It is just, both when we look back and when we look forward. And then next, it is thorough. Thorough. So when, when the angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, then the Lord 
the, the waters are dried up so that people can come from the kings from the east. So once again, you can see that this is, this is Jerusalem that is being judged because Jerusalem is on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. And if, you're at, if people are coming from the east, I mean, Rome is in the west, so this is not describing the Roman army. It's describing those people from beyond the Euphrates who were conscripted into Roman service and who, in fact, did play a significant part in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the waters of the Euphrates metaphorically are dried up so that they can have an easy and quick passage to come and, <clears throat> and to, uh, to perform God's wrath. Now, these people are not motivated by good motivations. Uh, several times in the, in the Old Testament, we read about uh, the king of Babylon or the king of Assyria who are going to be used to discipline Israel. And the Lord points out, they're not doing this because they want to serve me. They're doing this because they want to capture land. Now, the motivation for the Romans and the motivation for the people that are conscripted from beyond the Euphrates is not we're going to pour out God's wrath upon Jerusalem. No, they're motivated by, by demonic forces. And they're, <clears throat> they're, coming <clears throat> they're coming for purposes other than carrying out the will of God. The last thing that I want to say about uh, the judgment of God and the way that it might have been read in the first century is that the judgment of God in this case is final. Now, I, I read to you as our scripture reading in both the first and second scripture readings this morning came from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And as I pointed out to you, most of Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a threat against Israel. It's quite devastating. I'm going to destroy you if you turn away from me. <clears throat> now, as I said, that was written about 12 to 1400 years before the passage that we're reading about right here, ultimate destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And throughout those 12 to 1400 years, God had been just jaw-droppingly patient with Israel. Not long after Moses wrote that song, Israel entered into the promised land and the period of the judges commenced. Well, if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that it's just a 300-year cycle of Israel departed from the Lord, the Lord sent the heathen nations to chastise them, Israel repented, there was a judge that ruled for 30 or 40 years, and then Israel turned back away from the Lord, and so on throughout the book of Judges. And then at the conclusion of the book of Judges, that's when you have Saul coming to the throne, and David, and Solomon, and uh, then Solomon's son Rehoboam, and under Rehoboam the kingdom splits. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, takes the northern kingdom. Rehoboam takes the southern kingdom. And nearly all of the kings of northern Israel are wicked idolaters. Nearly all of them. And many of the rulers in the southern kingdom were also wicked idolaters. And, uh, but the southern kingdom had Jerusalem. The southern kingdom lasted a couple of hundred years longer than the northern kingdom did. But finally, they were carried off into captivity. But again, God has mercy on them and brings them back from captivity and gives them another opportunity to serve him. But during that time, they continued to stray from the Lord. They never again plunged into the gross idolatry. After the deportation, 
They never plunged again into the gross idolatry that they had been guilty of before the deportation to Assyria and Babylon. But they never embraced Jesus. When Jesus came, then they rejected him and crucified him. And that was the last straw. And so God pours out his judgment finally upon Jerusalem. And and since that time, he has never again adopted an ethnic people, a physical people, to be his people. Now God's people are defined spiritually. We are the people who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those lessons that are relevant for people who are reading this passage of Scripture in the first century are the same five lessons about God's judgment that are relevant for us as we consider our own nation and the extreme wickedness that is running rampant in our own nation. I don't have any prophetic insight into the future, but if I just try to apply the teaching of the Scriptures to what is happening in America today, I think surely God's judgment is coming. And in many ways, God's judgment is already obviously here. But let me spend the rest of my time talking to you as individuals. So consider your responsibilities as a citizen. We, we don't espouse uh, political candidates from the pulpit here. We don't espouse a political party. But we do uh, say, please be a responsible Christian citizen and exercise what you can to influence our country for good. And so the, the video that we showed at the first part of this service, totally nonpartisan, but we are unapologetically for the preservation of life in the womb. And so if we can do something to ensure that it will be illegal to kill unborn babies in the state of Kentucky... We ought to take advantage of that opportunity and vote yes on, uh, on that amendment that uh, will, be, will come up on Election Day, November 8th, I think it is. <clears throat> but uh, let's think about our, our, our response to God's judgment as individuals. And the first thing that we see again is that God's judgment is very painful. So God's judgment is not just a little smack on the hands. In this case, it was harmful and painful sores. And the judgment that God has pronounced against sinners is that they will be punished forever separated from him in a place called hell that is described in the Bible in the most graphic, horrifying terms. It's a lake of fire. It's a place of fire and brimstone. It's a place where the worm never dies. It's a place where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's described as outer darkness. There's nothing funny about the real hell. It's a place of incredible torments. The justice of God is very painful. The justice of God is also very devastating. So he, he destroys the sea, turns it into blood. But in your individual lives, just don't entertain any ideas that somehow if you go to hell, you're going to have some comfort of your friends being there. You've heard people say that. I, I want to go to hell when I die because all my friends are going to be there. And people on the radio shout out with pride, I'm on the highway to hell. 
and run with the devil and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> There's not going to be any comfort for people who go to hell. If there are friends there, they are not going to be your friends in hell. And you're not going to be their friends in hell. The justice of God is extremely devastating and it wrecks all comforts, all hope that you have in this life. But the justice of God, the judgment of God is extremely just. It is just because of what you have done. It is just because of what a sinner has done in rebelling against God in the past. And also, it is just in light of the fact of the continued rebellion and impenitence which must surely characterize the people who are in hell. I'm sure that you have sometimes wrestled with the question, why does hell have to be so terrible and why must it be eternal? Why must it go on forever? A couple of answers to that. One answer is that when you sin, you're sinning against a God who is infinite. And so your crime against an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. Another explanation is those who are in hell never repent. They continue in rebellion against God. Repentance, true repentance, is the work of God's Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not work repentance on those who are in hell. It's a place of God's judgment. And so ongoing punishment is merited because sin continues to go on uh, committed by those who are damned in hell. Just like these people here, when they were scorched by the sun, they, re- they cursed the God of heaven who had power over these plagues. They did not repent of their deeds. They didn't repent. Punishment or the threat of punishment by itself is not enough to cause someone to turn away from sin. There must also be the the expectation of gracious receptance from the Lord if I turn from sin to Him. He who comes to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. The punishment that, uh, that God brings upon those in hell is just. It also is very thorough. God is able to trace out all of the connections that caused you to do this, and every explanation that you can possibly give, I think the Lord says, you can go ahead and make all those explanations that you want. I will take them all into account. But you still are guilty and worthy of being condemned because you have rebelled against me. The final thing that I want to say about the justice of God and the judgment of God as it applies to individuals is that in hell it is final. There are some religions, <clears throat> some Christian denominations that teach that there's opportunity later on to, to make another decision. Uh, some would say even after you've been in hell for so long, there's an opportunity to come out if you want to. And then there are other denominations that teach that uh, there's kind of a middle ground between heaven and hell where you've got years to sort of get things straightened out. The Bible teaches this. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. Reincarnation is out. You're not going to die twice. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face the judgment. And so there's no second chances. 
the judgment that comes uh, from the Lord against those who refuse His grace and rebel against Him is a judgment that is final. I think it is one of the most dramatic sentences in the Bible, the one that we read in verse 17. The, uh, there's a voice that comes out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. It's over. Not going to be undone. It is done. And then, and then the place collapses. Then you've got Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom falling. In fact, there are 100-pound hailstones that fall at the conclusion of this passage. A little interesting, uh, interesting there are a couple of interesting uh, historical parallels. It says that there was a great earthquake such as had never been since man was on the earth, and the holy city was split into three parts. You can read in Josephus how that, that was literally fulfilled. Let me explain the word literally. There were three factions so there wasn't an earthquake that split into three parts, not that kind of literally. But there were three factions in Israel, in, <coughs> in Jerusalem. And those three factions warred against one another so that probably at the end, more Jews were killed by Jews than were killed by Romans when the city finally fell. And then the Romans, when they laid siege to the city, they had these catapults that would hurl these enormous stones. And Josephus talks about these enormous stones. They were, they were white stones. The stones of that area are very pale in color. And so the, the people in Israel could see them coming. And they became skilled at saying, well, here, here comes one. And they would try to get out of the way because these stones that were being catapulted weighed about 100 pounds each, which a, a talent was just about 100, 100 pounds. And so... Interesting historical fact. I'm not looking for historical fulfillments of all the things that are described here because I think that they were mainly poetic, but a couple of those are pretty remarkable described by Josephus. Now let me conclude with uh, having Elizabeth put up on the screen a poem that talks about the finality of God's judgment. And uh, this poem indicates, I agree with it, indicates that uh, sometimes uh, God's judgment falls upon people before they go to hell. Not the punishment and suffering, but the finality of their turning away from God. There is a time, we know not when, a point, we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To pass that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It does not quench the beaming eye or pale the glow of health. In other words, you can't look at the person and say, oh, he's, he's crossed the point of no return. No, he still looks the same. The conscience may be still at ease, the spirit live and gay. That which pleases still may please, and care be thrust away. As far as the person knows, things are going on as usual. But on that forehead, God has set indelibly a mark, unseen by men, for men as yet are blind and in the dark. 
There's a word left out of the next line. And yet that doomed man's, yet that doomed man's path below may bloom as Eden bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know or feel that he is, he is doomed. Things are just going on as usual. He knows, he feels that all is well and every fear is calmed. He lives, he dies, he wakes in hell, not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is this mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself hath sworn that he who goes is lost? How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? And where does hope end? And where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent, ye that from God depart. While it is called today, repent, and harden not your heart. It's a very somber poem to think that some people, even while they are living on earth and thinking that everything is all right, have already passed the point of no return. I wonder if there's someone listening to this sermon who wonders, have I passed the point of no return? Well, here's the question you must answer. Will you turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you say, oh, I want to do that more than anything, then do it. And then you will know. You have not passed the point of no return. But if you persist today saying, I know I need to do that sometime. I know I, know I need to do that in the future. But today, not today. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Until finally, you wake in hell one day with all your good intentions totally gone. And then the judgment of God is irreversible. God says when he sends someone to hell, it is done. May God have mercy on your soul. Max, come and lead us in a concluding hymn, please.